All right, we're getting right down there with our, I don't know if this will be the last message out of 2 Corinthians for a while, but um, we're, we're down here into the last chapter, chapter 13, and we've been going through this, looking at it as a topic of staying in the fight, and I think part of that fight of faith is one to be equipped in prayer and also equipped for the ministry of the work that goes on. And uh, this has been one of those, uh, I think, a good study as we've gone through. At least it has been for me. I have to study things ahead of time, and uh, it always has to go through me first. And so uh, I guess that's good. The Lord has put me in that position because probably if I didn't have to do that, I wouldn't, right? I mean, that tends to be what what it is. I I would hope I'd study things out, but I think because the Lord has... uh, uh, called me in this way I, I have to go through that and I count it a great privilege I really do to be able to study things through and uh, glad for that all right first or second Corinthians and we're in part two of this uh, closing remarks that Paul has uh, for the church and this would be his last letter that he writes to the Corinthian church and last week we looked at point one on this where um, he shames them and tells them some harsh things at the end of this letter but uh, tonight we're going to look at uh, the fact that he warned them and then that he encouraged them and that's how he closes off his writing is a word of encouragement so even before we start tonight let's have a word of prayer god we are grateful grateful again to open up your book help us to take it as uh, truly a blessing to be able to do so tonight And I thank you, Lord, for each that have gathered here and those that are gathered in other places around our world tonight even or or already have and some will. And they will meet for prayer. Uh, They will meet for Bible study. Uh, They will gather, O Lord, and your word will go out. And we do pray to that end tonight. And in this place, that you would prepare our hearts and help us, Lord, to look at these things in our lives and compare them against Scripture and against the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for him. And we pray in his name. Amen. We'll start reading 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is? Is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do not do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And again, may the Lord add his blessing to his word. Um, Looking at this, Paul, in this last section, he warns the uh, believers there at Corinth, or the church at Corinth, and maybe some weren't believers. It was the the people who were there 
in the church. Some were uh, causing trouble. Remember, some had been taken sort of captive by the Judaizers, at least doctrinally they had been taken captive, and they were led away from grace. And Paul writes this letter in defense of himself. He writes it also in correcting some more things, as he did in the first epistle. And we see that. Well, he begins this. He says, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. So he has, this will, in the Lord's will, he wanted to come that third time and be with him. And the first time he was there, he spent 18 months with him. And I can only imagine what it would have been like to have, uh, again, the Apostle Paul teaching you for 18 months. And obviously some weren't there in the very beginning of things, but later on there was a church that had started, albeit a young church, a church that was carnal. Uh, they, they had a lot of worldliness, a lot of things to deal with in their life. Paul graciously writes to reprove them and correct them, but also to show them that he loved them, as does any parent hopefully for their children when they discipline their child they're doing so with an attitude that the fact they love that child right and paul uh, talked about that in the section that we read earlier i mean earlier as in earlier in our study uh okay he also uh here talks about the he starts off uh, talking about dealing with sin in the local church and that's sort of what he's been, uh, not just sort of, but he has named some things, and then defending himself. And he quotes here from Deuteronomy, and what we read here is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, verse 15, and it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sins that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And one of the things about the law of Moses and as God gave his law to man and he gave his law specifically through Moses in this case when he did so he established certain rules in how people ought to be confronted and in particular with sin Um, and first of all there needs to be more than one witness to bring an accusation against somebody especially a strong accusation anybody can bring an accusation i guess but for one that would have any legal standing it would be one that would need two or three witnesses or you could say more in that but that was a minimal number and when paul deals with the sin that is at corinth he wants them also to keep in mind that he wants if there's issues that need to be dealt with it needs to be dealt with and and it needs to be done so at the word of at least two witnesses and again that's in keeping with what the old testament teaches in that matter of fact in the old testament you couldn't put someone to death if there was a death warrant you know like a, a death penalty case where they committed murder that was brought about death Um, unless you had witnesses and it says whoever kills a person the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty and so that was very important and um, in many cases that still is the basis of our laws in our country today in western civilization uh, in in those that still hold to the death penalty um and you can't just convict somebody on somebody, you know, hearsay or, or just circumstantial evidence, those kind of things. There needs to be testimony of witnesses or evidence that bears witness of that as well. <clears throat> the same thing goes for bringing accusations against uh, leaders in churches. Um, again, 
it's really easy to bring accusations against leaders. Sometimes there are legitimate accusations that come up, but as you know, um, it doesn't take much to accuse someone in a public place, like uh, if I'm thinking myself as a pastor, and I'm always mindful of that, in that I try not to put myself in a place where people would would question what I'm doing. Uh, I, I don't I don't handle the money of the church. That's handled by others, and it's accountable. Um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not in the nursery. I'm with the children, with other people, those kind of things, and I try to do that just simply because... I believe that my testimony also is a testimony of this church and the testimony of others. It's a testimony of Christ. And I think all of us need to operate somewhat like that, but in particular, a pastor just takes one accusation and then your, your ministry is not necessarily done, but it's, there's a big cloud over it from there. And uh, the, uh, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he said that, um, that the pastor, the elder, must be above reproach. And, and simply that means there should not be something that someone can come and say hey that guy's doing this or doing that that's wrong and i think that's very very important uh, nobody's perfect by any means and everybody is a is a sinner but there should not be a sin that would destroy the testimony or reputation of somebody in timothy he also says this do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses that would probably put to bed so to speak the rumor mill if people kept to that principle right if, if there was a true uh, problem going on within, let's say, the leader of a church or in, uh, in a church with a brother or sister, if we kept to that principle of at least two witnesses that brought it out, instead of just one person running around saying, oh, well, let me tell you this, because a lot of that, um, sometimes it's, it's not correct. It's not true. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 18, didn't he? He said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone principle here jesus says if you've got a fault with somebody go talk to that person that too is something that honestly i try to live by um and i because i feel like that's that the lord said i mean very clearly that if you have a problem with somebody go talk to that person don't go talk to this old person that's not in, involved in it or someone else or a group or people at work you go to that person you confront them and look what it says. It says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. I mean, that's the hope that sometimes you might have a fault with somebody and it's not even founded. And sometimes it's corrected if somebody would just go and say, hey, I've got this issue. And you know what? It's resolved. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So there is, uh, you know, again, the picture of someone else going to bear account of that and if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church or to the congregation but if he refuses even to hear the church let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector i don't know that that was uh in other words an outcast and in that and jesus goes on to say this assuredly i say to you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven again i say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name i am there in the midst of them and there's the power of unity in christ and that's that's the context with that whether it be with discipline or with 
positive things like coming together and praying and you know doing those kind of things it's always better to have witnesses of that isn't it well we we see that and again uh, if probably if people live by jesus's words it would be there would be a lot less problems in in everywhere you know if they just sought that whether it be at work or in a church or in a family uh, that it would be like that in in those areas now the judaizers had come and they had accused paul of being weak back there in uh, second corinthians chapter 10 and he picks up on that same principle again here in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 13. He says, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. He's referring to himself. He's not weak. Although Paul, certainly in his physical being, he was not talking about his physical being here. He's talking about uh, the, the strength of Christ that is in him. And he says, For though he was crucified in weakness, and that's true, right? Jesus when he was crucified, was as weak as he ever could be. He, he would succumb to death. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that if God had weakness, and it is the weakness of Christ that is demonstrated, it was when he was in the flesh, hanging on a cross. God the Son, he was weak. However, yet he lives by the power of God. The resurrection power proves that he's not... Uh, weak to be overcome by death but rather powerful because of God and Paul likens that with himself for we also are weak in him but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you and I'm always amazed again that if you have uh, someone who and, and I think Paul's a good example of this because what we read of him as described after his conversion all that he was a humble man he was a man that was, we looked at earlier, remember he had a thorn in the flesh that continued to, well, humble him, basically. And that weakness in the flesh was upon him. However, the power of God was upon him, which showed a greater strength. And I think, again, no matter how weak we become in the flesh, there is the power of God that resides with the believer. And I'm glad for that. Well, uh, he compares himself with Jesus, and that's a good comparison. It really is. And both, by the way, of the standards that the Scripture puts forth are strong men, not weak men. I do think that sometimes we label strength when there isn't, you know. Um, we do it sometimes with people who are morally weak, let's say, uh, living in unrighteousness and we call them heroes and strong people and look up to them and all that. And that's not what we should be doing. Uh, we shouldn't be elevating any man or woman, right? But we should be looking to Christ for those things. Uh, but we do it in Christian circles too, right? Um, there are certain people that seem to just come into a room and they, they, their presence acts powerful or whatever, but their message may indeed be weak. I've had those kind of occasions. Uh, I've had... When I was growing, when I just became a Christian, I remember I went to um, a church overseas, and I really grew there, a dear pastor who was there. But we had a, a couple guys in that uh, group that they thought that if you just yelled a lot and uh, you know jumped up and down and on the platform, that that was preaching. And they didn't have very much of a message, but they, they were young guys, and I hope that the Lord got a hold of them and, and kind of worked some of that out of them as far as the meat behind it 
But that isn't strength in preaching. It's just hollering loud, necessarily. There are good preachers who can sometimes yell and hollow loud, and you'll listen to them, I hope. But I, I would say that the ones often that I have, uh, for me anyways, that have ministered to me in great depth haven't been people who have been really dynamic and yelling and hollering and hopping up and down and throwing, you know, whatever. Hopefully they don't throw things. I've seen all kinds of weird stuff out there. Uh, but, but I say that because um, it should be the power of God, the power of Christ. And uh, I, I think some of the more influential people in my life, I think of Dave Doherty over there at MBBI. Uh, if any of you have heard Dave Doherty speak, he doesn't get too excited, does he? He just very steady, almost monotone. Not really, but he's there. But if you listen to what he has to say in his preaching, oh, the depths of that and the riches of Christ that come forward. And I've never sat in a church service with him as when he's preaching where I don't come away with a deeper appreciation for who Jesus is. And uh, it's, it's a central part of his message. But you won't probably get knocked back in your seat because someone turned up the volume real quick. If you do, there's something wrong, you know, but with him. And, and I say sometimes we judge things in ministry even by certain characters. As somebody who's really flamboyant and really charismatic in that sense, not in the gifting sense, but you know what I mean. They're, they're somebody who comes in and, and you think, well, that must be the real deal. Well, maybe it isn't. Paul warns of that. The Judaizers had a strong message. They came in and they had... Powerful preaching, no doubt. He, he talks and alludes to that elsewhere in this. And yet, Paul comes, he was probably weak, and that's what they said of him, right? Weak in bodily presence and his speech being contemptible. That means he probably spoke with an accent, and he, he didn't uh, have probably the, the strength of a strong man to stand up and do that in front of people, and they were, they were judging him for that. And yet his message was so powerful. Well... Uh, second corinthians 10 is where he said that he says do you look at things according to the outward appearance if anyone is convinced in himself that he's christ let him again consider this in himself that just as he is christ's even so we are christ's and even if i should boast somewhat more about our authority which the lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction i shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, we are, or excuse me, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. And Paul said, we are what we are. And uh, it was the real thing. Uh, Important with that. He also said this, 1 Corinthians 1.18, and this goes with what he was talking about. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I often think of that as sometimes Christians are accused of being weak-minded, um, weak people who need the crutch of religion. I mean, I've heard all these different things. And somehow, and, and by the way, that is the way like entertainment now portrays Christians often. If you look at, and, and I think just get away from most of it, really, you just get away. You see how if, it's, if there's someone of faith, 
and they usually paint the wrong kind of details about that too. But they always you know, keep them as either somebody you can't trust or somebody that is weak, somebody who's simple, somebody who's backwards in their culture, whatever it is. And, and you know what? That's the way the world perceives that. It's foolishness because they're perishing. But it is the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? It is the power for us, those who believe in God. We know it. Paul goes on to talk about this. He says, prepare yourselves in that first section. But verses 5 to 8, he says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Every now and again, it's good to take a self-examination, right? And just compare yourself, not against yourself, because if you compare yourself against yourself, you'll always look good, right? Um, stand in the mirror and look at the guy looking back at you and say, wow, you handsome dude, you know? You know? But, you know, you stand next to somebody that really looks good, it might be a little different story, right? Uh, the way people see it. But in this case, we're to examine ourselves against Christ and against the, the true faith that he presents, right? Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Not, not part of a faith group or something that might be part of it, but, but actually in the faith. In other words, you have true faith. Test yourselves. Test yourselves. What do I do? Is there a multiple choice question I can, you know, or, or a series of questions I can find? Is there some way, you know, we can take a DNA test, see if I'm a Christian or not or whatever? No, that's not kind of test. The test is against Scripture, and it's against, it's, as he says here, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? If Christ is not in you, then you are not in him, and you are not his. It's that simple. Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. That's what he says. And we'll come to that word here in a minute, but um, disqualified. And... There are several factors that really in Scripture uh, show us whether or not we are His or we are in the faith. Uh, the first one is the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes there, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not His. And so again, he kind of couples that first uh, sentence there he says but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of god dwells in you does the spirit of god dwell in you um you know one of the things i can say that woke me up in that i knew i was saved when i became a christian back in may of 1988 and i remember the very first thing that stood out to me, not because I had read the whole Bible, I hadn't. I just read a little bit of the Bible at that point. But I had the Holy Spirit in my life, and all of a sudden I couldn't stop thinking about the Lord. All of a sudden the things that I used to say using the Lord's name and all that, they wouldn't come to my lips. Because you know why? Because I didn't want to say those things against Him like that, using His name in vain and all that. And I remember saying, wow, there's something different here. I didn't understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I didn't understand who he is exactly, that he's God the Holy Spirit. I, I just knew that all of a sudden, that which was dead to him was alive to him. And it was, I was born again. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
Romans 8.16, a few verses on. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, and that's exactly what took place. And I can only speak for myself. I, I say, examine yourself, Jack. Okay. And I can remember a time. And I, I remember that God got a hold of me in a way that he'd never gotten a hold of me before. And all of a sudden, I was conscious of who he is. And I knew I was a sinner. And I needed to be saved. And he came into my life and he's lived it. You know, he's living it. Does he always have all of me? No. But I have all of him. And he's in me. Is he in you? That's the question. 1 John chapter 3 also uh, talks about this and this in the, in the testing of our faith, and for we're in the faith. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but do you love the brethren? Do you love other Christians? Do you love people? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. There is a qualifier for being in the faith and it's hopefully that you've passed from death to life right and when you have life one of the things that you do in life is you love and you love the brethren in particular and i'll i'll tell you there's there's some brother and and sister and i guess that are a little easier to love than others but i will say that you need to have a love for the lord and a love for each other he who does not love his brother abides in death. That's pretty strong words. That's the same John who wrote, For God so loved the world. Right? And he's, he's John, you know, a lot of times he touches on the topic of love. But he says, you don't have that love, you abide in death. You're dead. Another one that is a qualifier is, do you practice righteousness? Now this is a big one. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. There should be a desire, if you're truly in the faith and you're truly Christ, to be more like him. And so there should be a desire for us to be right. In other words, getting rid of things that we, in our lives, whether seen or unseen, that displease the Lord, that are sin. And you know, I can honestly say that for the Christian, there's never a day off for that. There really isn't. You know, you can't just say, well, hey, I've lived five days for the Lord this week. I'm going to take a weekend and just, you know, it's my time to go and sin. Because if you're really his, you're not going to want to do it. If you do it, you aren't going to feel good about it. That's how I, uh, someone explained it to me. And I can, I can say this, that yes, that's exactly how it is. If you're one of his, you will not feel good about sin and if you want to remain in sin, and I would say this, that if you're comfortable remaining in sin, you better question whether you're really his. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, John is not teaching sinless perfection here. That's a false uh, doctrine uh, some would hold to, or perfect sanctification in this life. What he is saying is just what I said, is that if you're truly born of God, you aren't going to want to go out there and sin and just remain in sin. And the reason is because you're born of God. You're, you're his, part of his family. And you bear his resemblance if you're one of his. And I think of that because uh, 
in our earthly families is often we bear resemblance to our siblings or our father or mother or or someone hopefully uh, and as we 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 take on those characteristics i think my wife had told me the other day you sound like your dad or my grandfather when he gets up out of his chair and he grunts you know my grandfather's dead now i said that sounds good thanks you know but she's you know i, I think of that I, I think yeah we we have we resemble those we're related to in word and in deed and sometimes in looks we should as christians resemble the lord First John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So again, there should be this desire to overcome worldliness and overcome the sin that is of the world. I find the greatest struggle, and I think probably many of you find that too, is that it's easy to be comfortable all of a sudden and find that the world gets India. And then you get it, I hopefully you do this, you get into the word of God and you start seeing what you really like. James says it's like a natural, a man looking into a glass or a mirror and he beholds his natural face. You know, you look in and you say, wow, I've slipped in this area. I've done that. I often think of that, like what would a Christian from about like the 1800s, if he just all of a sudden could time travel and land here in uh, Christianity in 2022, and what would be the things that would they would see Christians doing that they didn't do back 150 years ago or something like that? Now, there's probably some good things. There's probably some bad things. But I, I would dare say that worldliness, and if you look at the, the seven churches in Revelation, Laodicea, right, the lukewarm church, a little bit of worldliness, a little bit of Christ, and by the way, those two things don't co- coexist comfortably. But yet people find themselves in that. I don't know. Lord hasn't changed in all these times. He hasn't changed from the first century when the Corinthian church had sin in their church. He hasn't changed in 2022 with our church or any other church. God is still the same. I think it's important that we especially in, in churches that we fill leadership positions and other teaching positions and those things with people who, not necessarily perfect people, but people who are living a good, you know, righteous life in that. Um, and I would just say that that's a lot of times a self-examination would put an end to some of the, the stuff that goes on that others sometimes have to deal with later. He uses that word disqualified, or I think in the King James reprobate, and it means to be counterfeited or not pass a test. Uh, he uses it three times in the three verses that follow, right? Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. And the word is adokimos, and it means to be unqualified, fail a test, or an examination. Um, dokimos is like to examine for proof or truth. And here, uh, with the prefix ah before it, it is failed, all right, or without. And it means that it doesn't measure up. And so Paul warns of that. You are disqualified. And that's a strong word, isn't it? Disqualified. Um, 
think of like athletes when they run a race and uh, I'll use Lance Armstrong uh, remember Lance Armstrong the biker uh, for years he uh, I mean he was the top guy I mean he was the athlete in the bike racing you know world and I know people that named their kids after him you know all that later it was found out that he was gaming the system with um, with uh, drugs he was putting into his body or, you know, enhanced steroids and things like that, not necessarily, but things that would give him a performance edge that was against the rules. And it was finally found that he had done that. And he was disqualified. And all those victories that he had were taken away from him. Now, I don't believe the Lord takes our... Um, salvation from us that we're, we're secure in Christ he paid for us at once for all but I look at it this way you can build a life of godliness and a life uh, doing things but if you're bent on you know I can even say this not you know not dealing with sin not doing that, there comes a time when you can become disqualified your ministry is disqualified your testimony or truly if you're not in Christ you don't even have salvation there are people that outwardly you think that must be a Christian. But inwardly they don't have Christ. They've never repented of their sin. I've run into people like that before actually. I, I ran into a woman years ago in a church. And she says, I never remembered ever sinning. And I thought, wow. Yet she, she came to, to church. She goes, now I, I, I said, well, like, you don't, do you lie? Do you, no, no, no. You know? And I thought, that's dangerous. Not because you lie, don't lie, and hopefully she doesn't, but I don't think she was being truthful with herself. And she, not being truthful with herself, realizing she's a sinner, how could she repent and turn to Christ? There would be no need for salvation in that case, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says all. So I would just say, that's wrong. And, you know, as I think about that, I, I think, Sometimes we fool ourselves, don't we? I don't need to sin. I don't need to repent. My sin's not that great. No, we do. And we can become disqualified. We can fail the test. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In that case, Paul's talking about the sin in his flesh. And he says, I bring my body into subjection. We live in a world where it says, if it feels good, do it. Well, God's not against having things feel good. You know, he's not at all. But he wants things done his way. And we're living in a world that is finding out that if you don't discipline your body, first of all, you need the Lord to do that fully. You really do. You can't yield over your spirit if your spirit is is uh, if you're not born again you're dead in trespasses and sins and you're going to live in that life but in this case he's talking about having preached to others here's paul he, he writes all these great letters in the new testament on righteousness and on uh you know writing to the corinthian church and can you imagine if paul had some great moral failure at the end of all that it would have nullified what he had said to many people now what he said was true now, that didn't happen with Paul. I'm just saying it would have been very easy to see where someone becomes disqualified. Paul was worried about that. And it's a good worry. 
I think we ought to always be forcing ourselves beyond where we are comfortable sometimes to keep ourselves in subjection to the Lord. Sometimes that means run away. Run away from things. Run away from sin. This is also part of it here. In 1 John 5, 11, he says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Here John writes and, and he it reminds his readers that you can know you have eternal life. Do we have doubts sometimes? Yeah, sure everybody doubts, wonders. Where do you get rid of those doubts? You go back to the test yourself, examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith. Do you have a heart for the Lord and a witness of the Holy Spirit within you? Uh, God in you? Do you have a love for righteousness? Do you have a love for the brethren? Do you know you're going to heaven? Those are all areas that we can examine ourselves in. And if you're doubtful in those things, you need to settle it with God. It's not complicated. It's turning from sin and believing on Him and trusting Him for salvation. And, and say, Lord, I repent. I need you. I believe in you. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, victorious over sin and death. And if you believe that and confess that, you're saved, if it's in your heart. And that's what Paul alludes to here at the end of this section. He says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And what he's saying there is not that you can't say something that's not truth or that the truth can't be attacked but ultimately truth wins in the end truth will prevail he say it's not doing very well right now in my world but it will i think of all those who blaspheme god today and they blaspheme um you know all these areas of of life and those different things and and you know someday it'll be sorted out if they don't repent, they'll find out. They'll stand before a great judge. And he, he does right. Fully. 100%. All the time. And our country's in a rough place right now. Our people are in a rough place. Our, our world is in a rough place. And we're living in a world that seems to be coming undone at the seams in so many different places. And for the Christian, we have the truth. And the, we're told to go and to speak the truth in love. And sometimes people aren't going to be very loving back, but, but you know what? We still do so. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. You know, people think they counsel against the Lord today, but in the end, He wins. And if you're one of His, you do too. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And we thank You so much for, again, just uh, Your goodness to us. And Lord, as we think on these things i pray O oh lord we'd examine ourselves and keep short accounts with you if there's something that hinders us from fellowshipping with you that lord that would be dealt with 
If there's faults we have with others, that, Lord, we deal with that in an appropriate way. Lord, if there's areas that, whether seen or unseen, that we need to repent of, I pray, O oh God, you'd show us those things and renew a right spirit within us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.